today I'm going to give my small crew here and the people online, so the Wabrex online, so the Lilligs online, there's a few of them online. Um, I'm going to give you a little bit of a history lesson about uh, Cyrus a little bit to give you some context, and then we'll look at the text of Isaiah 45 and hopefully 46 also. Um, we're at a, a series of chapters, 45 through 48, where they're important, but not a lot happens. Do you get what I'm saying? Oh, I'm more than six feet, so I'm going to take this off. Um, it's, it's, there's not a whole lot that happens. In other words, it's not like there's all these messianic prophecies. It's just a lot of stuff about how God's promising things to Israel, a lot of stuff about Cyrus, and then a lot about the futility of Babylon, basically. And then all of a sudden you get a servant song. So it's kind of interesting It's in the text as far as that goes. So I'm going to go fairly quick through this and try to focus on, on some other things. All right. So this thing you see on your screen there is called the Cyrus Cylinder. The Cyrus Cylinder. This is one of the most important archaeological finds in the ancient Near East. And the Cyrus Cylinder includes a lot of information that we know about not only the Jews returning, but also just how he governed. And he governs in the 500s BC. So remember that Nebuchadnezzar comes in as a Babylonian, takes out the Jews, right? 586 BC. And then by the time you get to the 540s, 530s, there's a return. So a generation later, generation or two, depending on what generation you're in, the Jews are returning under Cyrus, okay? And so this is just, I just show you this to show you we have a lot of evidence um, archaeologically for Cyrus. He's sometimes called Cyrus the Great. Okay, so here's some information for, oh, went too far. Let's go back. It's not liking this. There we go. <laughs> there, finally. Cyrus II rules Persia from 559 to 530, so you get his dates. Um, he becomes the general ruler, kind of like the Assyrians, who also rule a huge chunk of this. Um, but he conquers that whole area. He's the founder of the Achaemenid dynasty. This is a, uh, a recurring thorn in the side for the Greeks. So if you know you're, if you've taken Western Civ or if you've taken world history, he's the founder of the dynasty that tries to conquer Greece like two or three times. Um, so if you re recognize names like Xerxes and Darius or Darius, depending on how you pronounce it, they attack Greece several times. And then eventually Greece attacks them kind of in revenge um, when the Macedonians led by Alexander the Great go as far as the Indus River, they get to India um, when they conquer the known world going east in the 330s. And so for 200 years, though, this is the prime power of the ancient Near East. And so Cyrus II is the one who does this. It's not Babylon. It's not Assyria. It is Persia, ancient Persia. And what's fascinating about this is in Isaiah 45, this is prophesied 150 to 200 years beforehand. So if you remember last week, I mentioned this. There are many skeptics that will say things like, you know, well, there's no way they could have gotten this name right. So that clearly proves that Isaiah was redacted in like, say, the three or four hundreds to explain how they came back or, you know, something like that. You'll, there's a way to try to get out of the idea that predictive prophecy is possible. Of course, if God exists and God inspires his word, then it is certainly possible. Um, but that's something that does does occur this time. All right. I know some of you are writing these notes. And by the way, I wanted to point that out there, too, on the Western civilization thing. So beloved by the Jews and then not beloved by the Greeks, both of which the Jews and the Greeks are some of the big founding members of what we call Western civilization. So it's interesting. So in the Bible, Cyrus is actually portrayed fairly positively because he allows the Jews to return. But if you read world history, if the Persians win the Battle of Marathon or the Battle of Salamis, it's possible we don't have what we call Western Civ today. 
things like democracy or uh, certain I economic ideas, philosophy, arts, you know, I mean, going on all these things that come out of ancient Greece. If Xerxes or Darius conquers Greece, that might not happen. And so it's funny, it's kind of a mixed bag. So on one hand, you're, if you're you know part of the people of God, Cyrus is this great hero. But if you're not part of the people of God, or if you're just somebody who's a member of the city states of Greece, this is the true big hostile enemy um, until Alexander the Great. So they actually do defeat the Persians against all odds. There's a lot of his battles there. Um, the Battle of Thermopylae, also with the, the Battle of the 300, you know, the legend of the 300 Spartans that line themselves up shoulder to shoulder in a mountain pass. And then really they, they hold off hundreds and hundreds of Persians and they're actually betrayed is how they lose. Somebody actually shows them a different route on the mountains um, to get around them. But it's one of those great famous histories, last stands with King Leonidas, very legendary. This is that era and it's that empire that Cyrus founds. If you know a lot of those stories, Marathon is the famous guy running 26 miles and then saying Nike victory, right? All those legendary stories were in that part of the of history. Okay. So let's see if this will actually cooperate with me. There we go. It did. So in the month Tishri, when Cyrus did battle, these are quotes from the ancient Near East. This is from the Nabonidus Chronicle. Nabonidus is the dad of Belshazzar. Okay, so Belshazzar is the king of Babylon. He's the regent king. He's the one that's mentioned in Daniel with the writing on the wall. Okay, so if you think of your Babylonian kings, Nebuchadnezzar II, Nebuchadnezzar II is the one who's who takes the Jews into exile and destroys the temple in 586 BC. His son is Nabonidus, and his grandson is Belshazzar. Okay, and so some people point the Bible and say, well, we got some historical inaccuracies because the Bible says he's king. Well, his dad, Nabonidus, was way off down like in Arabia somewhere when the Persians and the Medes knock on the doors of Babylon. And so Belshazzar was ruling as king. He was the regent. Does that make sense? So Daniel and other passages calling him king is not inaccurate. So then when Cyrus shows up on the scene, um, he kicks out that dynasty, Nebuchadnezzar and that crew, because that's Nebuchadnezzar's descendants. Now you're going to get Cyrus and his descendants. You, you, if that helps you keep these things track, uh, keep track of things. I can draw it on the board later if you want me to kind of do that again. Um, but Nabonidus is, is Nebuchadnezzar's son, Belshazzar's daddy. Okay, And this is what he says. In the month Tishri, when Cyrus did battle, the people of Akkad retreated. On the 14th day, Nabonidus fled. On the 16th day, the army of Cyrus entered Babylon without a battle. So in the book of Daniel, we think that that could be Cyrus's other name might be Darius or Darius the Mede, because it might be emphasizing his Median heritage, even though his actual re reigning name is Cyrus. There's like, who is this Darius the Mede in Daniel, who's the king? We don't know, but we think it could also be Cyrus. Um, there's some debate about that, but just know that that's when this takes place in the 500s, 560s. Okay, it continues. I am Cyrus. This is what Cyrus says. I am Cyrus, the rebuilder of Esgalia, and Esaglia, there we go, Esaglia, and Ezida, the Nabu temple. And he says this. He also says in his cylinder and in other places, I return the gods to the sacred centers on the other side of the Tigris, whose sanctuaries have been abandoned for a long time. I gathered all the inhabitants and returned their dwellings. So he's talking about letting people go home too. So it's not just we get this in the Old Testament. Cyrus himself and in the royal chronicles of Persia and in Babylon, we're seeing some of the same ideas. So that's why it's one of the most well-attested stuff in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is making real claims on real history. And we have other archaeological and historical data that bears that out about who Cyrus is. 
And it's not, again, he's only mentioned, he's mentioned in Isaiah 44 at the very end and also in Isaiah 45. He's also called like an eagle or a bird of prey from the east. He's had, there's some poetic things all through Isaiah. So I'm giving you the background now so you can see how this is fulfilled in history. That when God uh, fulfills this, it actually is in real world history. It's kind of cool. All right, this just got a little delay. There we go. What's interesting is in verse 1, he's actually called a Messiah. He's called God's anointed. So he's, of course, a type of the future Messiah. But why is he called God's anointed one? Well, one, he does the purposes of God. But in particular, the expectations for any messianic figure is rescue. Okay? And so if you're in exile and he lets you go home, he has technically rescued you, right, as the Messiah. So Cyrus in Isaiah is a Messiah type, which is interesting. You would not have, you wouldn't think that. And we don't translate it that. We don't say Cyrus, my anointed one, or Cyrus, Cyrus, my hero, or something like that, right? We just say, uh, we, we, just, we don't think that way. But he is called that in, in verse one. He is God's quote unquote Messiah or a Messiah type that is later fulfilled in Christ, of course. But God's people are rescued. So it's not inaccurate to say that about him, which is fascinating because he's a pagan. So God's calling a pagan in verse one a Messiah figure that one out for a while that's not we just don't naturally think that way it's kind of kind of baffling all right and then uh he also demonstrates in this passage his abilities uh, compared to the false gods of babylon um, by predicting the proper name of a foreign king at least 150 to 200 years beforehand remember the earlier chapters and then later chapters in isaiah so chapters 46 47 babylonian gods are going to be called out for being stupid remember how last week we read that passage where god's like making fun of it where he's like saying, hey, you cut down a tree and part of it's firewood and then the other half you're worshiping. Remember how God's like making fun? Remember that whole thing? And so he's going to continue with that polemic. So if you read Isaiah starting in verse 40 through like say 49, like read all of those seven or eight chapters there. If you read all of them kind of back to back to back, you get this impression and this rhythm in the text where God's showing how he is superior to all these false gods. So don't forget that that polemic is kind of always in the background here. Um, with with Cyrus and with what's what's happening here. Um, there's a great quote in the Luton Study Bible. I think I put it up here. Let's see if it's up next. Yeah, here it is. Look at this. this I love this quote. I was doing all my research. This is awesome. The Lord rescues Israel through Cyrus, the pagan king of Persia. The Lord uses all creation, even the Satan, to accomplish his good purposes. If the devil and an idolater can come to such notable service, will the Lord not use you to great purpose? I love that. I think that's a great quote because it's, I mean, if God's going to use a pagan king and if you're one of his, you can be pretty confident there's something great going on for you. Right. I mean, I, I love that quote. It's, it's a, it's a great contrast. I wife, I can wave. Cause I see Patrick kind of over there kind of doing that. It's kind of fun. It's okay. If it's on the recording, Ralph and Rochelle will say hi. They're on the recording right now. So <laughs> bye Patrick. Bye. Okay. So my, back to this, though, it's important to, to realize that, though, that if the king of Persia can be used, you can be used. If God can even use the devil to accomplish his purposes, he can use us, right? It's some confidence builder that God can do this sort of thing. All right. So during this time, remember that the Persians conquered everywhere, everywhere but Egypt. Of After Cyrus, uh, Darius and Xerxes do conquer Egypt. So this is a Persian king being anointed in the Egyptian manner. So this is a relief. Again, so it's contemporary. And so notice that the gods of Egypt are crowning a Persian king. Alexander the Great's going to do this too. He's going to go in and be called Pharaoh. 
The Macedonian king of Greece is being called Pharaoh. Think about that for a second. It's a little bit weird. When Julius Caesar conquers Egypt, he calls himself Pharaoh. All of these ancient Near Eastern conquerors and place people like the Greeks and the Romans, when they would go to the Near East, would adopt some of these customs to legitimize their rule. And so with Cyrus, we're not sure how much of his letting the Jews go back to Jerusalem is benevolence or just pure political calculation. We don't know. It's not like we can do a psychological profile of his motivations. We don't have something that says Cyrus let the Jews go home because of X. We don't. We just don't have it. And so we do have some of this archaeological evidence, again, giving you some uh, ancient Near Eastern context, though, of how they're being crowned in that way. And so he himself was probably either a polytheist or a Zoroastrian. If you don't know Zoroastrianism, it's actually still alive in Persia to this day. Super, super small minority. Not very many people. Most of Persia, what we now call Iran, the modern state of Iran, is now, for the most part, uh, Islamic. They're, they're Shia Islam. They're a minority, but in, in Iran, it's the majority. They are Shia Islam. So that's why you have ayatollahs and imams and those sort of names in, in Iran. Uh, but there is a really small, less than 10% of the population that's still Zoroastrian. They're kind of a dualistic religion. There's kind of like the supreme fire god, and then there's kind of a lesser uh, dark God or God of death or God of darkness sort of thing. They kind of have a dualistic view of nature. Some people think they're almost monotheistic. Some people think they're not. They're kind of an interesting religion. Uh, they interact with the Jews at times. We think the Jews may have influenced them. Um, but it may be that Cyrus was just a just flat out polytheist. We Again, we don't have enough data to know this about him. But what you would do, whether it was Rome or, ancient, uh, or the ancient uh, Greeks, doesn't matter who it was, when you conquered an area, what you would do is you would actually subsume their gods, right? So that's why the Romans, for example, have the Pantheon, that great huge building in Rome. Pantheon means all the gods. And what you do is you would take gods from all your conquered people and put them in your temple. Okay? And then that would allow those conquered people to say, hey, look, I defeated your god, but no, I'm not saying that he's gone. Your, your god that I just defeated, or I defeated you, he actually blessed me. To defeat you so i'm taking him on as my own also so i'm honoring your gods i'm here because your god sent me see how convenient that is because now you can legitimize your rule based on the local religions of the peoples that you conquer and so almost all of these ancient cultures do this that's why you have a persian king being anointed by egyptian gods that's why alexander the great is called pharaoh that's why the romans have the pantheon it's a it's a common thread so when cyrus Let's the Jews go back. Is he? You could honestly hear him saying, "Oh, you guys worship Yahweh? Yep, me too. I'm good there. Go ahead, go build the temple." You see, you see what I mean. So it's it's politically convenient because it keeps stability in your realm. It means, hey, you can have all the gods you want. I'm just going to take in those gods as long as you acknowledge me as king. You can do whatever you want in your local local ceremonies, and I'll even participate. Um, if I show up on any given day, I might even participate in your ceremonies. So the reason why the Jews and the Christians twerk everybody off is the Jews and the Christians say, no, there's only one. All these other gods are false. Whereas the Romans or the Persians or whoever would say, no, they're all true. We're going to worship them all. The more gods, the better. Don't want to make anybody mad. Or like the Greeks, we'll even build one to the one we don't even know about. Right? You get what I'm saying? That sort of paganism or that sort of polytheism is that it's you have to understand that um, contextually. So when you contrast that sort of attitude with Isaiah, you can see why the Jews are considered obstinate. Or why Christians later are going to be considered obstinate because we don't 
uh, the people of God don't go along with the system. The system is flawed. It's not true. And so we're not going to go along with a falsity. Um, but yeah, you could see, uh, you, I could see Cyrus easily saying, oh, you guys worship Yahweh. Hey, maybe I should pray to Yahweh tonight. I'll pray to him and I'll let you go build your temple as long as you pay your taxes. Again, and, and you know, there's a, how much, now you got to ask yourself, I'm being a little cynical now, just cynical. Okay, forgive me, I'm a little cynical. How often do we have uh, religious, I mean, uh, political leaders today that give lip service to God and really don't believe anything about him? You know, people who would never darken the doors of a church or open their Bibles say, God bless America, you know, just something to just throw out there. It's not like this is not, but we don't, we just do it differently. They don't pray to ISIS or Addis or, you know, those sort of things. By the way, just odd fact, there were more temples to Isis and Osiris in Rome than there were to Jupiter because it was exotic. It was the new mystery religion, right? Okay. So same thing in Persia. So when he conquered Babylon, this is my last comment. I want to get to the text. Um, when he conquered Babylon in his own writings, he said, I was restoring the true worship of Marduk, who was a Babylonian god, not a Persian god, a Babylonian god. And he's like, hey. I'm, 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 he's blessing me because I'm, I'm, you guys forgot how to worship him. I'm, I'm restoring that. So he actually goes to the, the ziggurats, the Babylonian temples, and performs all the Babylonian kingly obligations as the Persian king. So that's another reason why we can be a little cynical on him. All right. So now what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you the text itself and how God talks about Cyrus. And as that loads, we want to make sure we're still recording. We had a flaw last week. We recorded like 20 minutes and then stopped. Yes, we're still recording. Good. And it's showing up. I'm going to zoom this in for the folks online. There we go. So I'm going to start here. And so I'm going to just kind of comment on this. And as we go, maybe if you have any comments or questions, you can, we can, of course, stop for that. So it says, thus says the Lord to his anointed Cyrus. This word right here, his anointed, that's what we can trans. That's Meshiach, that's Messiah. Okay. Thus says to the Lord, thus, thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him, that gates may not be closed. Okay. There's some idiomatic phrases in there that sound odd. Loosing the belt of kings, weird st uh, statement. What right hand I have grasped. There's a couple of things I want to say. As I showed you in that Egyptian art before, we have numerous uh, reliefs and sculptures from this period where gods are grasping the right hand of kings as a sign of favor. And so what God's saying here is he's saying that I am showing my divine favor. I'm putting my blessing on Cyrus. Hence, I'm grasping his right hand. You're taking somebody's hand of power. It's your sword hand, right? I'm taking their, and their scepter hand, and I'm blessing it. For the king to have his right hand taken by God means that God is saying, this power hand that you have is my hand. You see how that works? There's symbolism in grasping the right hand. Okay? And then to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings. What that is referring to is when you uh, got all your military armor out, you would gird your belt you gird up your loins, so to speak. You would tie your whole thing off. So you put all your armor on and then you gird. It's like an armored belt that you put on to keep all your armor and keep you all put together. So to loosen the belts of kings means that other kings that are not Cyrus are not going to be fighting him. They've either been conquered or they've surrendered by saying that their belts have been loose because they're not girded up for battle anymore. So you have the right hand of power and you have the, the, the belt there. So that helps you contextually what's going on here, why God's saying this. He's saying, I'm blessing his hand of power. I'm blessing his military might and his 
his uh, his political rule by grasping his right hand and the kings that he that I'm giving to him aren't even going to fight him. They're just going to lay down. Basically, they're just going to surrender and say, OK, I acknowledge you. Just leave me alone, please. <laughs> OK. All right. Opening the doors, of course, the gates would not be closed. All the doors of those cities were walled, reinforced with metal. You had to like that's why you have battering rams, right, to try to knock those things down. So they're open to him. So Cyrus is just going to waltz through. OK. Just yeah, go for it. So it's too anointed to Cyrus. Yeah. So, so that's just meaning that he, you know, I guess blessing his reign, right? Yeah, I mean, but, yeah. But that anointing is different than like the other anointing. Right. So we, you you came in a little late. So just yeah. yeah so that's okay. So because I mentioned this before, but just really quickly, the word there is Meshiach. It's Messiah. Okay. And we it's because God has chosen him to rescue his people, even though he's not the Messiah. Okay. So he's a type of Christ. Yeah. Good clarification. But yeah, in the original Hebrew, it's it's actually Messiah, which is surprising um, as far as things go. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. Again, this is conquest. I will give you the treasures and the hordes in secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. So God's talking to Cyrus 200, 150 to 200 years before he's alive saying, Hey, I'm going to give you all these treasures and you're going to know it's because of me. So that's why some people say, does he, is he kind of pious? Does he, is he friendly to the God of Yahweh? Does he believe in the real God and false gods also? Again, hard to know without a psychological profile, which we will never have. And why does God do it? For the sake of my servant, Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. <laughs> so now God could actually say that about all of us, by the way, right? that he called us before we even knew who he was. There's there's truth in that for all of us, okay? That God in his mercy and in his grace calls us before we even know him, right? The way Paul says that is that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's how we know God's love, right? So he knew us before we knew him. But I love that poetry here. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. There's that, that monotheism emphasizing again and again, God, I, there's only one, there's only one, there's only one. If God keeps repeating something over and over and over, chances are we should pay attention. Okay. So if God keeps telling the ancient Jews, there's only one God, there's only one God, there's only one God. I am the God. There's nobody else but me. You would think that they would get it. But of course, they keep they keep they keep corrupting themselves with the people around them, as do we, if if we're not, if we're not honest. Okay. I equip you, that's Cyrus, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Now, when it says create calamity, we got to be careful here because God doesn't, doesn't intentionally create evil in the way that we would think so. So it's not like God's creating murder. Do you get what I'm saying? Or God's, or God's not creating rape or cancer. Do you get what I'm saying? God's not intentionally creating evil. When he says create calamity, what this has to do is this is calamity of nations. God's ruling the nations. Okay. This is not like evil and suffering. God's not the author of evil. Now God permits evil. He allows the possibility of evil. Do you see the difference there? But he doesn't directly cause those things. We know that from other passages in scripture. Okay. Is it like it creates confusion? Right. He can create like Tower of Babel. Right. Right. But that's be, and that's and there's a difference between divine punishment, which is what that is, and just evil as itself. Right. So calamity here could be judgment also. Right. Calamity does not necessarily mean like, you know, we got cancer because God just decided to do it for the sake of, you know, being arbitrary. 
Okay, because there are people that think God's like that. That God's kind of like what's the old movie that oh, back two thousand three to? It's not necessarily a good movie. Well, the Jim Carrey movie, um, Bruce Almighty. Do you remember, remember Bruce Almighty? Bruce Almighty at the very beginning of the movie he says something along the lines of God's in the sky and he's like a kid with a giant magnifying glass saying, "Hey, you're getting uncomfortable yet? Like you're the ant of the you get, you get the idea." So people have this this view of God that God's arbitrary and likes to just kind of mess with us just for the sake of his own entertainment. And if that's how you view calamity, then that's a problem. But if calamity is viewed as God is ruling and judging the nations or God is judging the nations, then that's not a problem. So people read these passages and they make assumptions in the text that aren't there. Yeah, go ahead. Well, could it be that he creates calamity because he stands for truth and good? And sometimes that's a conflict with what has been created by humans on earth? Yeah, yeah absolutely. So it's calamity for them, not for him, right? Right. <laughs> right. But yeah, no, you're right. That's that is calamity because if you if you set up a false system and then God takes it out or judges that system or allows it to fail, that's calamity, right? So no, you're right about that. So no, that's good. That's a good uh, addition there. I am the Lord who does all these things. Um, shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. This, I, it's, I love this image in spring. Spring now, right? We're starting to see green, and we're starting to see that stuff starting to show up. The idea that it's like this eternal spring, that God's righteousness and his truth and those sort of things are coming out like the greening of, uh, greening of our, our uh, area right now. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. This is a great image. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. <laughs> Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or a woman with what you are in labor. <laughs> so, this is, this is funny. This is, there's, there's humor in scripture and God, you, I know God has a sense of humor. Um, it's, it's like, can you, can you imagine the sculptor right at the, you know, at the, at the, at the kiln, right. And they're getting ready to fire that sculpture. Hey, Hey, put a handle on me. You didn't, you didn't do it right. <laughs> Or like the child in the womb, hey, mom, how, how tall am I going to be? Or, hey, who am I? What are you doing here? I mean, just it's just odd to think that way. God's pointing out, okay, who's in charge, right? And are you going to point at me and say you're doing it wrong? Or are you doing those things, okay? It's, it's kind of cool. It continues, thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and the one who formed him, ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? And again, remember this is in the context of Cyrus. So what God's saying to Cyrus is, hey, I made you, and these are my chosen people. Okay, so be humble here. Who's in charge? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their hosts. I have stirred him up in righteousness. I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. And that actually does come true. Cyrus does not get bribed by the Jews. He doesn't, like, demand a ransom payment. He just lets him go. And so this comes true to the letter when Cyrus does this. It's pretty amazing. And so then we're going to get the Lord, the only Savior. Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush. Cush is right below Egypt, and it was known for its gold, if you don't know that. Okay, so it's present-day northern Sudan, southern Egypt. It's where the Nile has its source, closer to where the Nile has its source but known worldwide for its gold reserves. That's one of the big, it was one of the sources of Egyptian wealth, okay? The wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush 
And the Sabians, they were uh, pastoralists, so lots of flocks and cattle. Men of stature shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is no other, no God besides him. Truly, you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel the Savior. All of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go in confusion together. But Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. This is interesting. This everlasting salvation, you would think that this doesn't come true because after Cyrus comes in, then you get the Hellenists, you get Alexander the Great and his descendants, they conquer. Then you get the Romans. And then under Titus, General Titus in 70 AD, the second temple is destroyed and the Jews are scattered again. So how is there everlasting salvation then? Through Jesus? Yeah, through Christ. In other words, it's not, it's it's one people of God, like we've been talking. It's true. And the faithful this time who are trusting in God's promises are going to reign with him in heaven also. So it's still true. Everlasting salvation. It doesn't mean that there's a permanent nation state of Israel. Okay. There may or may not be. God's still going to be faithful to his people either way. So, so, so any of the preceding verses then, um, people coming with shackles and then people go... So that's just that's going on today too. Like they look at awe with like Christians who suffer well, or, or maybe look like, hey, th this is something different. Like there must be a God. I mean, is that kind of what it's? Well, I think I think I know where you're going with that. I think contextually on this, it's this is this passage is tricky because it keeps switching like voices. Like on one hand, God's talking to Cyrus, and then other times it sounds like Isaiah's talking, like back to God. Have you noticed that? So, like for example. Earlier, it talks about, thus says the Lord, the wealth of the Egyptians and the merchandise are going to be yours. Surely God is in you. Then look what it says. Truly, you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. So now we're in a different tense. So you got, it's tricky because there's this. it goes back and forth. It's like a dialogue between Isaiah and God. And so that makes it confusing. confusing. So in other words, right before that letter, that letter verse here, where are we at here? Oh, we're, I went past. Here we go. Israel, yeah, you shall not put the, the, the shackles have to do with Cyrus. See how it's talking about that? The wealth of Egypt, the merchandise of Cush, men of stature that shall come over to you. So that stuff's to Cyrus. But this later stuff is God, uh, Isaiah talking back to God. Do you see what I'm saying? So there's a difference in the dialogue. Okay. Th does that make sense? Yeah, okay, good. Verse 18 For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. This is very important, by the way, from a Christian worldview standpoint. The earth was made for human beings. We weren't made for the earth. There are some people now that get that confused. Uh, you'll have you'll have atheists that will say things that we're just a bit of we're you, I'm, I'm not kidding you. We're just a bit of pollution. If you got rid of us, nobody knows. But we are the summit of God's creation. He made the earth as a home for human beings. He formed it to be inhabited. That's important. Now, it doesn't mean we abuse his creation. It doesn't mean we go out, you know, intentionally polluting it on purpose or throwing trash everywhere or destroying it or not replanting things or not being good stewards. That is not what I'm saying. You get what I mean? But it does mean that he meant it to have people in it. He wanted us to fill the earth and subdue it, it says in Genesis. Okay. It doesn't mean just live in one place. Fill the earth and subdue it. That's one of the reasons the Babel judgment happens, the Tower of Babel, is they're not subduing the earth and scattering. They're all living together in one big place, building towers. Okay, and God says, all right, I got to get you to scatter, so I'm going to do it my way. And since you weren't cooperate, confuse the languages, 
and they scatter, right? That's the, the whole point of that story is God saying, you guys are being disobedient and now I'm going to make you be obedient, basically. That would be a calamity like Jessica was talking about, okay? That would be a calamity for them, but in God's purposes, it actually accomplished what he wanted it to do, okay? All, I honestly believe, and again, it would take some time and I'd have to parse this. It's just a little, sorry, a little hair-brained idea for myself. I would love to do some research on the language families in the world and see if you can actually date them back to a roughly common time. Do you see what I mean by that? Like if you took like the Indo-European, the Proto-Indo-European language. So like all European languages and Indian languages have a common ancestor, right? And if you take all the uh, Sino languages, those are the Chinese type languages and put them all in a family and then took all the Semitic languages like Hebrew and those, and they're all families and they're recognizable families because of certain linguistic styles, certain words in common, the way they do structure and gender. You know what I'm saying? There's You can trust those things. So if you talk to linguists, you can get back to a certain level. Where is the Proto-Indo-European language? Where is the Proto-Semitic language? I would wonder if you could go back far enough in history, and it would be guesswork. There's no way to prove it, okay? But it would be interesting historical guesswork. If you went back to all of them being somewhere between like four to 6,000 years or maybe maybe six, even longer, if they all went back to that time, you could make an argument, is this Babel? You know what I'm saying? Is this when this happened? Because all of a sudden you have all these language families. It's really interesting because if you look in human history, it's like all of a sudden there's all this diversity in language. Just a theory. I have no way of proving it. It's some research that you could do, you know, or I could do sometime. Don't have time, but just a thought. But anyways, Earth's supposed to have people in it. God says that. I am the Lord and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. You know, later on we have seek and you shall find, Right. Knock and it will be opened unto you, as Christ will say. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And is there no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior? There is none beside me. So remember, he's talking to the Jews now. So as the Jews read these promises, especially when they go back to Israel, but even in their exile, the Jews are going to read these promises and say, oh, yeah, God's been with us this entire time. God's reminding them. Who's, who promised that you're going to go back home? They read the book of Isaiah and like, oh, that's God promised this 150 years before there was even a Persia. Okay, so they would have read this and it would have been a true promise. It's true for us also, but it would have been true for them and even more so. In exile, it would have been blessed words in exile. God's not forgotten about us. And then even more uh, uh, humbling to realize when you're back in Israel, think of Ezra and Nehemiah rebuilding the temple. They start reading these passages in Isaiah. Oh my, oh my goodness. Here we are. God was faithful to his promises. Turn to me and be saved to all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, for my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear, swear, allegiance, excuse me, swear allegiance. Does that not sound like Philippians 2? That the name of Jesus, every knee shall bear and every tongue confess, bow and every tongue confess to the glory of God the Father, right? That's the, that, famous, that famous passage where he did not consider equality with God uh, something to be grasped, but humbled himself to the point of death, and then every knee shall bow. I would say that came true, right, in Christ. This is one of those great kind of little hints that God's saying this about God. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Now, not all of them are going to do it willingly, <laughs> but, you know, there are great blessings for those that do.
Only in the Lord it shall be said of me and our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord of the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. And we are, remember, I said this a couple of weeks ago with Romans, we are Abraham's spiritual descendants. So that means we will also be justified and be glorified by God in him, not because of our own merits, of course. Um, and remember, in these promises, they're, they're losing. The Jews are losing, and God's still making these promises. We are born losing, and God's still making these promises, right? So in our baptisms, we are justified in our faith that's created by the Holy Spirit, in the word of God, word and sacrament. We are also justified, and it's a now and not yet. We are Abraham's descendants right now, and then we'll ultimately be glorified in the life of the world to come. So there's multiple levels. There's the immediate fulfillment about Israel going back, and there's the ultimate of fulfillment of eternal rest with God. There's the both and. It's not an either or. It's a both and. So before I go to the really brief chapter, because I got five minutes, this is short. It's like 10 verses. Does anybody have any comments or questions on this one as we go through this? It's kind of fun. I, I, I like reading this. I did chuckle. I, I, my wife was laughing at me. She's like, are you laughing at the Bible? I was like, yeah, actually, it was funny. <laughs> Just because I was studying, and it was that passage about the, uh, you know, can the, can the, can the play, say to the, play, you know, the play say to the pot, hey, put on a new handle, you know. Can the, can the baby say to the mom, hey, what you doing there? <laughs> I got a big kick out of that. So it just, it just struck me, and I was in the right frame of mind, and I was chuckling. My wife's like, it's the first time I've ever seen you laugh while reading the Bible. It's like, well, it's funny. <laughs> so, all right, so I'm going to go up. Oh, let's see. Oh, 40, no, it's 45. I'm going to go to the next one. Let's go to 46. This is going to be very short. No, I got to do it this way. I forgot it was being uh, odd. But this way, I'm not seeing all the. I would use Bible Gateway, but on my Promethean, it gives me like twelve advertisements a page, so it's just not as not as pleasant. I find that this this Bible.com one is just a lot more efficient for me. There we go, and we'll do full, full chapter. This is really really short, and this is just going to talk through some of the Babylonian gods, and it's just very very quickly. So just like in chapter 45, where God says none of these wooden idols do anything, in chapter 46, it's just the He calls them out by name. Here's all your Babylonian gods, right? So Bel bows down. Bel is a very common god back then. He's the storm god. Starts in Canaan, but it's also absorbed by other, uh, he has many names, but Bel or Baal, he's the, the Canaanite storm god, okay? Nebo stoops. Their idols are beasts and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but go themselves into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob. All the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. Even to your old age, I am he, and to gray ha hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and will save. That's a comforting verse for you, right? That as you age and as you get gray hairs and as you get older, God's still the same. He's not changing. He's not like the other gods who actually do kind of age or are arbitrary. God's actually in your old age, your gray hairs. <laughs> Uh, we built this high school and I had last year's senior class. I got some uh, little extra salt and pepper in my beard, I think, from them. All right. <laughs> to whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales, hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Remember this and stand firm. Recall to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. 
For I am God and there is no other. There's that emphasis again. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my cancel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east. There's Cyrus again. See that? A bird of prey was a symbol for war. We see this in every all the cultures of this era, Greece, Persia, Babylon. A bird of prey was symbolic of war. Okay. The man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. And I, what I love about this passage is that really short chapter, but it's really, really clear that Israel is not doing this because of its own merits. This is only by the grace of God. Think about what he keeps saying. Look what God calls them. Stubborn of heart. He calls them earlier transgressors. Where's that at here? Right here. Verse eight. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. So God's making gospel promises, rescue promises to people he's calling names. <laughs> hey, you transgressors. Hey, you stubborn. No, he's not doing it in a childish way. He's accurate when he says this. Transgressing, by the way, is this idea of um, a violation of covenant. It's a violation of boundaries. Okay, that's the idea of what transgression means. So, hey, you people that are violating all the rules and violating all my boundaries, I'm going to make some promises to you. In mine, it's rebels. Yeah. So it's, yeah. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, it is. So rebels, transgressors, and then later on, stubborn, <laughs> heart of heart, right? Those sort of things. And God's still far from righteousness. You guys are in pretty rough shape. But I'm going to save you anyways for my own glory. And later we find out in the New Testament even more. And it's in the Old Testament also. It's because God loves him. And he loves us too. And he doesn't want us to die. And so he's going to actually make this happen. And so he will not delay. I will put my salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. And so that's fulfilled in Jerusalem. But of course, ultimately in the heavenly Jerusalem, in the new heavens and the new earth. It's a wonderful passage. But I like this because it shows. Because if you think that it's based on performance, you look at these sort of passages. And it's not based on Israel's performance at all. They were, they, <laughs> if anything, they, uh, they should have been ignored by God and he should have restarted. But he doesn't. Right. And it's the same thing for us. So I love this passage um, and how this closes. And that was good timing, too, because we're right at the end of the bell. Any other comments, questions on this? So I'm a little discombobulated. It's spring break. And so my sleep schedule is all screwed up. So I'm sure I'm stumbling a little more than I usually do. Uh, but but uh, yeah, it was just a, one of those days where you wake up at weird times and go to bed at weird times and eat weird things. And, you know, it's just it was spring break. So I'm, it'll be good for me just to kind of get back into the routine starting tomorrow. But uh, unless there's any other comments or questions, I'll close with the blessing and then let you all go because that was the bell. It's like perfect timing. All right. The Lord bless us and keep us. The Lord make his face shine upon us and be gracious unto us. The Lord lift up his countenance upon us and give us peace. Amen. If you have any questions or comments, email them to podcast at gracepocatello.org. And make sure to subscribe to our channel to stay up to date on sermons and classes at Grace Lutheran Church in Pocatello, Idaho. This podcast is designed so that you can take grace with you anywhere you go. Oh,